What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Stack String Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Daniel DeBrock. And today I'm joined by uh, a friend of mine, Lizzie Raudach. <laughs> um, and uh, so, Lizzie, thanks for, for jumping on. Uh, really excited to have you here. It's been a little bit since we've, uh, since we've uh, chatted face-to-face. Can you give a bit of a breakdown of who you are and just some of the things that you're doing at the moment? Sure, no worries. And thank you for taking the time to pronounce my name. A lot of people mumble through the last name and hope that no one was really listening. Uh, As Dan said, my name's Lizzie. I am currently a digital nomad, um, the co-director of a company called Flex Success, which mainly uh, deals with one-on-one clients in a coaching capacity. But we also have a podcast, a couple of books, a couple of courses, um, some background on how I got here. Uh, I became a personal trainer back in 2008, so a very long time ago now, Um, after really gaining a passion for fitness, because I think, honestly, fitness is the thing that turned my life around. I um, was dealing with some pretty heavy things as a kid and was partying a lot and all the drugs that came with it, and I could see my life going downhill, so I got into the gym, and that was really the start of a new life for me. And I, um, I wanted to pursue that. So I became a personal trainer and I did face-to-face one-on-one sessions for nearly a decade. Uh, and in that time, I met the most amazing people, learned so much, grew so much as a person, uh, but decided to move to coaching, um, focusing more on nutrition because I felt I had more impact there. Um, as a personal trainer, my scope of practice was working on exercise and I had very little control over how to coach my clients outside of that their sleep their nutrition of course i could you know maybe drink less often maybe eat more fruits and vegetables give general government guidelines but it was outside of my scope of practice and my certifications to be guiding them more specifically Um, and although my clients were getting faster and stronger and feeling better the body composition changes weren't really happening because a lot of that comes down to nutrition right So I was referring them to nutritionists, psychologists, chiropractors, whoever I needed to refer them to. But honestly, the nutrition side of thing was still lacking. A lot of people weren't doing a great job, but I knew I could do a better job. Um, And so while juggling uni and PT, I got certified for nutrition, moved online, uh, and here we are. What what is it, like eight years into Flex Success, we now have a team of coaches and I think a long string of happy, successful clients. Um, in that time, me being in the fitness industry for nearly 15 years, I've dabbled in jiu-jitsu and CrossFit, um, strongman accidentally made an Australian record because I didn't count properly the weight that was on the bar, (laughs) which was a fun mistake, but for the most part, lifting weights like a bodybuilder. So I think that's the elevator pitch of who I am, perhaps. I love how you accidentally set a strongman record in Australia. (laughs) I had to recount the bar like three times. Like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so I think like what you and Dean are doing, um, I guess for context, Dean Dean is uh, the the other owner of Flex Success. And, and my husband. Yeah, yeah. The minor detail. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so like, I think what you guys are doing is is really cool because in order to travel that much and be in so many different environments, like you really have to have a good grasp on your nutrition, on your habits. You have to be very adaptable. Um, 
and you have to have a lot of flexibility not even just necessarily in the foods that you're eating but also like just your general approach like psychologically like how you view food how all these things are, are kind of mm -hmm. interacting so um i always thought that, that was really interesting uh, especially seeing like just how often you guys are traveling it's like literally every time i see your story it's it's something crazy going on which is which is really really cool um thank you and yeah. I mean, like we'll we'll get into a lot of the stuff related to adherence and sticking to things, but I guess one of the areas that I wanted to start off with was uh, one of the, one of the things that you suggested actually, uh, kind of off camera previously was um, slow versus fast progress, and I think this is something that is kind of funny because when you talk about slow versus fast progress, the slow progress is always faster. <laughs> It ends up being faster uh, in, in the long run, but it's very difficult to wrap your head around it. And there's a lot of uh, resistance and obstacles when you tell someone like what they're going to have to do, because I think there's this sort of assumption that when you hire a coach, you're just going to get all the hacks. They'll help you get really shredded. And then that's just it. And your life is kind of perfect from then on there. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that and how you approach uh these conversations with your clients and then what that might actually look like, you know, not necessarily talking about individual differences, but more so like a principled approach of how you, you come about that, uh, that coaching experience. Cool. cool. Um, like anyone that has a good idea of a topic, it's the annoying, like there's so much nuance and it depends. So um, really interesting topic, I think, and really useful because a lot of these conversations with our clients start with, okay, what do you want to achieve? Oh, 20 kilos weight loss. When would you like to do it by? Tomorrow would be great. You know, so sometimes, well, a lot of the time, one week from now is better than one year from now in their minds. But like you said, they're not always aware of the things that need to be done or they're not always willing to do the thing as well. So <clears throat> maybe a good place to start is by defining fast progress versus slow progress, I think. Um, and a lot of people put this down to a number, one kilo a week, two kilos a week, three kilos a week. Um, and a lot of people also, especially with hefty goals, have really big expectations from, for themselves, maybe based off shows like The Biggest Loser. Do you have that in Canada where you're from, Dan? I've... I know of it, but I don't, I've never seen it before, but okay. I know of it. It's with the Jillian Michaels and whatever. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 Um, and there's an Australian uh, coach as well, or PT, I forget his name now, but anyways, people are losing four, five, six kilos a week. Um, and I think sometimes people get their expectations set unrealistically from shows like that. So let's take a look at what slow and fast really means. It's not an absolute number. Like I mentioned before, it's more of a percentage of body weight. So let's take an example of somebody who, let's take me and Dean as an example. Dean's 100 kilos, pretty damn lean. I'm 60 kilos, relatively lean for a female. If we want to go at a slow and, or a steady pace, call it half a percent to 1% of our body weight per week. So 1% for Dean at 100 kilos, he's losing 100, uh, one kilo a week. For me, I'm losing 600 grams a week. It's not that he's doing better, it's that we're both, losing 1%, but our body weights are lower to begin with, right? Um, anything above 2% of body weight loss per week, we could consider fast progress. Anything lower than about half a percent, we could consider slow progress. Um, and 
we'll get into why we might want to go fast or slow, the considerations in a moment. Um, but it's worth thinking about how much you have to lose in the first place <laughs> as to the speed you might want to go at. If somebody has is, is quite overweight, uh, sorry, is over fat, but not necessarily overweight, they have more fat to lose. Whereas someone like Dean, who's really, really lean, but might weigh a lot, has a lot of muscle, he might want to go a little bit slower because the fat he has to lose is a little less. Um, you know, at the end of a cut, Dan, you're at the end of a cut right now, aren't you? Yeah, I think one more week. Okay, cool. So things are probably starting to slow down for you? No, actually. I um, I, uh, I had a period a while back where I hit that kind of hard plateau. I started getting GI issues and all that stuff, uh -huh. and that was rough. Okay. But then I implemented a gut protocol. After two weeks, I was good. And then same thing, just kept going. So I've been very lucky. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. What we find a lot of the time is at the beginning of a cut, people are losing really quickly because with something called false weight, they might be losing. Uh, like water, for example, inflammation might be reducing because they're eating better. Things are moving quickly, but as they have less to lose, the scales might be slowing down. You know, maybe you've got some metabolic adaptations, maybe they're moving less because they're more fatigued, things like that. So the rate of loss depends on, on quite a few things, um, and those are some things to consider. Um, when a client comes to us and says, you know, I, I want to do this by next week, uh, we could consider, do we want to actually do this quickly or do we want to tackle this at a, a steady pace or even a slow pace? Um, and first of all, we need to think, do we actually have the option to do either one? And what I mean by that is some people are pigeonholed into only having the option to go slowly. Um, that might be because they have a history of yo-yo dieting. And we know in the past when they've tried to diet hard, they, what's a better word than, than snapping? They, they end up giving up the very restrictive habits that they can't sustain and going back to their old habits and therefore back to their old body. And so we know that that method isn't sustainable for them. Maybe they have a really low tolerance for stress. Maybe they have... Um, some priorities in their life that conflict with taking a fast approach. Um, things that are really important that they can't give up. Maybe they have to eat out for work, drink with their boss. They have kids they need to cook for, for whatever reason, they just don't have the time to always prep their food and things like that. So we need to consider, do we actually have the two options? Um, if the answer is yes, then perhaps uh, somebody who might want to go faster, someone who has a really short timeline. They have a wedding in eight weeks, for example. Um, they have a single event that they don't need to build sustainable habits for. Maybe they're trying to get on a bodybuilding stage. Um, maybe they have a really high tolerance to stress, so they can deal with things that are necessary, and they also have a good exit plan because once you get there, what are you going to do? Otherwise, they've had an exit plan. It's like, trying to straighten deck chairs on the Titanic. Like it's, it's not going to work out for you. Um, or maybe if we want fast results, if we're talking about body weight, not necessarily talking about muscle gain here, different can of worms kind of, um, it's somebody going through a recovery diet. So they've just gotten extremely lean. They're at unhealthy, unsustainable levels of body fat and they want to gain that back quickly. So those are four reasons might why we might want to consider a fast approach. Um, you went on a fast approach, didn't you, Dan, for your cut? Uh, now I am. So just at the end, I am. Um, I'm down 
50 something pounds. So it's quite good. So like 25 kilos, basically. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, but most of that uh, came off across like seven and a half months. So I just did a straight diet all the way through. Um, but like during that time, I was very, very disciplined. So my step count, like every single aspect of my life was already tracked. Okay. So it's very easy for me to accommodate, which is one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily see that slowed progress up until the end when it just got kind of brutal in my gut. Um, but then now I'm doing the last little bit and I was just like, mentally, I'm just like, I can't go back into a long diet to lose it. Like I just, I fucking hate bodybuilding. I hate it. I like lifting heavy and I'm so much weaker than I used to be. Like I'm, I'm doing like 365 on the bench press and I'm fucking struggling for like five reps. I'm like, this is brutal. And, um, and so I'm like, I just want to gain weight again. So I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to do a really extreme cut for like two weeks, try and lose a bunch of weight, lean out and then, uh, and then just be done with it. Cause mm -hmm. I, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. That's definitely one benefit to, um, getting it done quickly. You don't have to do it for as long. Um, yeah. you mentioned, oh, it was on, it was while you, after you pressed record, I'm pretty sure that the, um, the slow way is often the fast way. Did you mention that after we press record yeah. or after? Yeah. yeah. Um, now the people that have a history of yo-yo dieting, trying to go really hard and then going back to old habits, they're back on again, they're off again, they're back on again, they're off again. They're taking two steps forward, at least two steps back, two steps forward, at least two steps back. And so taking a slower approach, we'll talk about some benefits in a moment, means that you're very unlikely to take backward steps if you are those backward steps are minimal and we're ready and charged to take two more forward steps again. Um, now, a slower approach, as I mentioned, you know, half a percent, one percent body weight per week is reasonable. That's not particularly slow. I mean, think about where you'll be six months from now, losing half a percent to one percent of body weight per week, like significantly leaner. Most people will be at least at their goal weight six months from now. Um, and staying in old cycles of on again off again six months from now you're likely to be at the same spot so actually taking the slow and steady approach is going to get you there faster even though it feels annoying in the beginning the funny thing too is that even though you differentiated between different rates of weight loss you know like we didn't necessarily talk about what you would do as like a performance-based athlete but just body uh -huh. composition you're like okay these are some good proximal like uh ranges to to sort of aim for even if you were to tell them about the fast rate of progress like two plus percent is very fast yeah you know if you were to tell them that and then actually translate that into how many pounds or kilograms they're going to lose per week that in their mind is still considered slow they're like what i can't lose 10 pounds a week like what are you talking and you're just like what yeah like you, you know that you'd have to like cut off half your arm to lose that right like just think about what that means you know yeah and we have a uh, fancy marketing and sexy sales tactics to thank for that 10 pounds in 10 days, all your money back. What the hell? Um, and and uh, people also, I think, when they say I want to lose weight, what they mean is I want to lose fat. And they're not always understanding the distinction between weight loss and fat loss. Yes, they're strongly correlated. If we're losing body fat and we're not gaining something else at the same rate, uh, then the scales are going to be going down. But also if people are going in very low calorie diets, like 30, 40% deficit to their maintenance calories. I mean, we're at some pretty serious risk of muscle loss there. Um, 
loss of sanity perhaps as well, insane hunger, mood disturbances, you know, performance. Um, you mentioned that, you know, your, your bench is feeling really hard as well and, and that's a, a common symptom. I mean, even shitty sleep, which has flow on effects. So yes, some people can lose weight really fast. Is all of it fat? Mm, unless they have their diet and their training like spot on, probably not. So when we break it down to this is how much you're going to lose per week, but hey, we want to go at this rate because we're trying to maintain as much muscle mass as we can while you're going through this fat loss phase. We're trying to reduce the symptoms of fatigue, mental preoccupation with food, hunger, reduce the risk of nutrient deficiencies, all of those things. Usually you can swing someone. So that's, you brought up a couple of things that are really, really important because let's say you are someone who's uh, trying to just do this really aggressively okay. and you want to drop, you know, 30%, 40% of your calories, like some really big number. Well, what if you're you and you only weigh 60 kilos? Like just, just okay. meeting your protein requirement is going to take up like 60, 70% of your total calories. And then how are we going to get our micronutrients in? If we just get the micronutrients in, that might be 100% of calories if you're just eating like lots of veggies. So, you know what I mean? I, I, a lot of the times I don't think people necessarily look at a lot of those things, which are really important and can significantly change depending on body weight and, and your starting point, like a lot of different things. So it's like for, I coach a lot of small females who are performance-based athletes. And it's like, you know, I have similar conversations that, as you do where it's like, hey, you know, do you want to get super weak? And they're like, no. So it's a little easier for them because their performance is their number one priority, but yeah. they're trying to kind of sustain a certain level of leanness just because like you want to look good and then they, they want to feel good and they want to perform well for their weight class. And so um, it's, it's maybe a little bit easier for them, but then at the same time, that's one thing that I think a lot of people really don't understand, especially when they're making these recommendations like, oh, 20%, um, you know, like 20% of your calories should be coming from protein. It's like, well, what if you only have like 1500 calories to allocate? That's like what? Like, I don't know, 40 grams of protein or some shit. Like, I don't know what math is, but it's really, really low. So a lot of the times when, when these recommendations aren't necessarily contextualized, it can uh, send people down a pretty, pretty bad path. Yeah, definitely. So if uh, somebody who's a hundred kilos and has a fair amount of fat to lose, cuts their calories by 30%, not as detrimental. There's still a fair few calories there. Definitely enough to get their protein in, their fruit and veg, some carbs, some good quality fats. But like, as you said, what about me? What about my maintenance calories are 2,000? Not a lot. More than other girls at 60 kilos because I'm, you know, I don't know, 16% body fat. Like, I have more muscle mass for my weight than, than most other girls. But still. Um, You're also very active, though. That's just kind of part of your lifestyle. Yeah. No, I, I've uh, over the years found ways to keep myself active without feeling like it's an effort. Like uh, I just walk to the gym, whatever gym I decide to go to, I make it at least 15 minutes away. So there's 30 minutes of walking every time I train. Um, Side you know, note, um, sorry to cut you off, but anyone who is listening should definitely check out uh, the, the Flex Success podcast because you guys actually did a podcast specifically on this topic, talking about how you can increase your general activity without actually increasing your general activity, like without actively trying to make it work, right? So just little things like that, definitely worth watching. I think you guys uh, had some really, really great strategies that you said, but anyway, sorry. 
Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Um, you know, I found that really useful, even like catching up with friends instead of going out for lunch, like, hey, let's go for a dog walk. And then like I get my, I get some sun, I get some movement in, I get to catch up with my friend and I don't feel like, oh, I'm spending so much time exercising. No, I'm not. I'm walking to the gym. I'm catching up with my friend. You know, I'm, I'm sightseeing, all of these things. Um, but where I was getting was uh, before I was mentioning if, if someone who's 100 kilos and has lots of fat to lose, if they cut their calories by 30%, there's still plenty to play with. Me at 60 kilos, if I cut my calories by the same percentage, you mentioned like there's hardly enough just to fit my um, my protein in and my fruit and veggies. So I, I wanted to um, bring up the topic of discretionary calories and discretionary foods here. Whatever I have remaining after my must-haves for the day, I've got my protein in, I've got my fruit in, I've got my veg in, you know, maybe some complex carbohydrates and good quality fats. Those are sort of like my musts regardless of what I'm trying to do, cut, gain or maintain. After that, all the calories remaining um, are called discretionary calories. I would have very few if I'm cutting at my current weight, very few, um, sometimes none. Sometimes all I'm eating is my must-haves, which we call the foundation diet at Flex Success. Uh, Dean, however, or someone who's 100 kilos, would have, I don't know, 1,200, 1,000, 2,000 calories remaining as their discretionary calories. So quite a lot. They have more to, I don't know, maybe fulfill a craving, maybe go and eat out, um, just snack at their desk, have bigger meals. And if someone is cutting, because hunger is usually uh, raised during a cut, we want to be choosing more satiating foods. Now, if, if I have 30 discretionary calories left over, I'm not using that on chocolate. What's that, like half a square? No, not even. Like a little crumb of chocolate. I'm going to have some fruit. I'm going to, I don't know, some diet jelly. I'm going to use those calories really wisely. Whereas someone who's heavier has the luxury of being less selective. Um, so there's definitely a small people problem when it comes to that. There definitely is. Um, and yeah, it's funny. So like right now, I, I talked to you before we started recording about how busy I am and, uh, maybe actually this is something a really potentially really good thing that we can get into. Um, but I'm on a hundred grams of carbs, mm -hmm. which well, I'm, yeah. I'm 240 right now 240 238 which is like 110 kilos i think okay right so i'm i'm one gram of carb I'm, per kilo of body weight huh <laughs> that's one gram of carb per kilo of body weight not not even yeah not even right it's, it's crazy yeah it's like 0.9 or something like that so um yeah, it's yeah it's pretty wild but uh i've been so fucking busy like so busy that I have had zero cravings just because I am too busy to even think about it. Like I was working before this. I'm on this podcast. I've got like other, I've got like a conference that I have to finish writing for. I've got other stuff I've got to prep for. I've got so much stuff that I have to do that I have zero hunger issues. Uh -huh. And actually through my, through most of my diet, even like that seven and a half month stint or whatever, cravings weren't really an issue because I was really intelligent with how I allocated my calories. So whole foods, lots and lots of fruits and veggies, good quality lean proteins, kind of like what you were saying. Mm. But then beyond that, I just kept myself super busy. Like I work a lot, I train a lot, and then I come home and I'm like, you know, so I'll try and usually push a couple of 
like a little bit more of my calories towards the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just kind of going into different strategies that can help bolster adherence based on different individuals' lifestyles and things like that. Um, are there certain things that you've noticed like, hey, I found these specific strategies I tend to recommend quite a bit to people because that's usually just kind of what they run into, right? Like, have you sort of noticed anything like that? Tons, tons. Um, where to start? I guess initially if somebody comes to me and they've had multiple failed dieting attempts, I would figure out, okay, where are we going wrong? How, are they are they trying to go too fast? And then, you know, maybe we need to take a slower approach. But the next thing we would probably consider readiness. So when we consider readiness, there's sort of three things. Is it their willingness to change is low? Probably not if they're coming to you and they're trying to pay you for something. Is it that their confidence in their ability to change is low? Maybe if they've had multiple failed attempts, that makes sense. Um, or maybe it's that, for whatever reason, they just can't actually go ahead and implement the actions long-term that are necessary. Um, Let's say it's the confidence thing um, and somebody thinks to themselves, I can't portion control, I have no self-control, my cravings are out of control. They just have no confidence in their ability. Um, Cravings is a big one. Is that something that you also come up against with your clients as well they just feel like their cravings are out of control and maybe their hunger is out of control um not not a ton but again i i don't i have like kind of a different demographic so when i was working with people who were more body composition focused definitely Uh Um, but now i'm almost exclusively work with performance athletes right even people who are coming to me for weight loss um they still at least have like a secondary goal that's very important that's performance-based. So there's a lot more wiggle room in terms of like their initial investment and, and, and like what they're prioritizing. So it is a completely different kind of- uh, Gotcha. You take, yeah. Okay, cool. So as far as adherence is concerned, that is something that I come up against a lot with clients, um, hunger and cravings and their confidence. So I find it helpful to start small if confidence is low. Because confidence, I guess, is built on repeat success. So what we want to show people is that you you can be successful, you can do these things, but set the bar low so that it's achievable. Um, And if they feel like invasive thoughts are getting in their way, like I have no willpower, I have no control over my cravings, it can help to put a sentence in front of that. I feel like I have no willpower. Uh, It puts some distance between thoughts and reality because I think a lot of shit that isn't true all the time and, like, our thoughts aren't always true. And so by saying I had the thought that I can't control myself when I have cravings helps people realise that it's not necessarily true and we can use something called the cravings thermometer if if we're going to talk about cravings. Uh, And that's when we recognise that cravings or even hunger isn't a light switch. It's not a yes or no, I'm hungry, I'm not hungry, I have a craving, I don't have a craving. There's ranges. So the thermometer goes from one to ten. One is no craving at all, you know, three, four, you know, not very much. Um, And we eliminate a seven because, like, what's a seven? That's sort of this, like, mediocre, it's kind of strong, it's kind of not strong. So we get people to 
uh, rate their craving. If it's a six or below, you know, moderate, low, very low, maybe we're going to not fulfill this craving right now. If we're an eight or above, strong, very strong, extreme, we will consider it. Um, and that helps people eat craved foods less often. And we know that frequency of cravings is attached to frequency of consuming foods that are craved. So it's sort of this vicious cycle. So that helps people have fewer cravings, only fill them when they are feeling like the urge is very, very strong. Um, but we can also employ a tactic called urge surfing. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it is for uh, any sort of addictive behaviours like eating like an asshole might be one of them. Also sex addictions, gambling addictions, alcoholism, things like that. And it's where we decide to no longer fight the urge because people who have really strong cravings, I'm going to resist it, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to stop thinking about it. And studies show us that actually trying to push them away makes us focus on them more and makes them even harder to resist, which isn't very helpful. So urge surfing suggests that instead of fighting it, um, we accept it. Right now I'm having an urge, an overwhelming urge to eat chocolate. I'm not trying to push it away. I know it's there. I acknowledge where it is. I'm feeling this urge somewhere around my stomach. It's making me feel X, Y, and Z. I'm going to breathe through it. And eventually, like a wave in the ocean, surfing the urge, the wave is going to pass on its own. And at first, this is really difficult to do, really difficult to do. And uh, where people go wrong is right at the peak of the wave, just before it passes, they're like, this is too strong, and they end up eating the thing or doing the thing. Um, but if we practice urge surfing, the more we're successful at surfing urges, the less frequent and the less intense our cravings are going to get and the easier it is to adhere to whatever plan we've decided is appropriate for us. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, I knew someone who used to use this tactic. I don't really use it myself just because I don't think I really have a need for it, but um, I thought it was a great idea where they were like, <clears throat> you know, if you have an urge for, for like uh, consuming chocolate or whatever it might be, you know, don't restrict yourself, but instead just say, you know what, I'm going to wait one hour mm -hmm. and in an hour, if I still want this, then I'll have it, but I'm not going to fucking have this until an hour is over. And then you go and find something else to do. And then almost always in the hour, you're like, yeah, I don't really need that much. Right. Because you're kind of creating that distance. Exactly. Like you're saying, you're just sort of creating that time for things to sort of pass. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm fine. It's not that big of a deal. And one interesting thing that you were talking about as well, or sorry, you kind of mentioned, but I, I wanted to piggyback on was like your reactive cycle. So, you know, you have some sort of trigger, whether it's environmental, internal, doesn't necessarily matter, that triggers a certain type of like habituated behavior. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of the research shows as well on that is if you've been doing that for a long time, the reward cascade that follows eating the chocolate or whatever actually somewhat becomes detached from the food itself and is more driven by the actual behavior. So if you were to go and eat, let's say um, you want to eat chips, right? Like, cause chips have a certain texture. If you go and eat carrots or, or something with kind of like a similar text, you know what I mean? Like there's a little bit of similarity there. Um, then that usually ends up satisfying it. Cause you're just like, oh, I just wanted to do that thing. And so you can just kind of like replace the habit 
And most of the time, that level of anxiety and stress that's building up will also kind of subside, um, which is probably also part of, I can't remember what you called it, surfing. Urge surfing, yeah, sure. <laughs> Such an Australian thing to say. Um, yeah, but uh, no, I, I think that's I think that's really great advice. Um, for In Australia, we had a campaign called "Don't Stop It, Swap It." It was a government initiative to get people moving and eating better. And basically, it was exactly what you were saying. Um, if usually at three o'clock you just feel a bit bored and peckish, and usually you go and eat a Mars bar. Don't swap it. Just don't. Sorry, don't stop it. Just swap it for an apple. You're still engaging in a behavior that's somehow self-soothing, or because breaking habits are really difficult to do. But what if we could swap it for something more helpful? Like the apple isn't taking away from helpfulness; it's adding to it. It's giving yeah. us fiber. It's giving us micros. So um, sometimes giving a catchy jingle, "Don't swap it, stop it," can be a good way for people to remember these things. That's awesome. So corny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 hundred. You're hundred percent right. Um, so it's January. Um, I don't know why I thought it was way later in the year. I guess it's just like a lot has happened. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, people are still on their New Year's resolution kicks. They're mm. jumping to the gym. They're starting their diets, all that stuff. And you know, I always see kind of like mixed reviews. I see people being like, "Well, you know, like don't make New Year's resolutions." And I hear other people who are like, "Well." I mean, if it's helping them out, like I'm, I'm hesitant to say, don't make a New Year's resolution, even if it's only temporary, because it's like it's still a tool. Like motivation's still a tool. Okay. You know, I, I kind of tend to fall in that camp a little bit. But that being said, I think you know, other individuals still have a pretty good point of how are we going to transition this from some sort of you know burst of motivation into something that's a little bit more lasting mm. and. So when you get someone who who is kind of in that headspace of, okay, I'm ready to do this, I'm ready to go, they've got a very high degree of motivation, how do you capitalize on that and show them fast results if that's appropriate for them, but then also kind of lay the foundation for them to actually be on that, mm -hmm. have some sort of, um, you know, development of skills and understanding and education around what they need to do to create the sustainability around what they've accomplished in that short period of time, or even if it's only, you know, part of, of their goal that's been reached. Okay. So January 1, as you know, as you just said, everyone's on, on their health kick. Um, but I think when people decide to reach out for coaching, they also feel that surge of motivation because it's, you know, the, the fresh start effect. Monday's the new day. January 1 is the new thing. You know, this, the beginning of my coaching is the beginning of new me. Um, a lot of people have extrinsic motivators. They, you know, their revenge body, they just broke up with their ex and they want to look really hot or they've got a wedding coming up or they feel excluded from their social group and maybe they'll get more attention if they look hot. Whatever the reason, extrinsic motivators are excellent fuel sources to turn the engine on. They never last long. So maybe I'll touch on two things. I think an important way to help clients stay motivated long-term after that initial surge of motivation has passed, because it always passes, um, is to think about what are the intrinsic motivators that might keep me going. An example of that is, um, you mentioned, Dan, that Dean and I travel a lot. We actually don't have a home. We just have a suitcase, and we just like every few weeks or few months choose a new country. Um, 
And the extrinsic motivators that keep me personally going is they're all value-based. There's not a date that's going to pass. It's not reliant on people giving me more attention or more likes. Um, and although values might adjust over time, we always have values. So my values to continue training, and you know, we can help our clients find their values as well, is um, I want to be independent until the day I die. I don't want someone wiping my ass and feeding me and you know, getting my groceries for me. I want to do that shit. And the day that I can't do that, I don't want to be here anymore. And I know that eating well and exercising and moving my body in a way that nourishes it and doesn't punish it is going to achieve that value. I'm, I'm continuously working towards it. Um, I also really value freedom and spontaneity. I want to have the freedom to do any activity at the drop of a hat. You know, do you want to climb this mountain? Yes. Do you want to go skiing? Yes. Like I'm fit enough to do any of these things. Um, and so helping our clients identify what values are really important to them and how we can connect that to nutrition, exercise, recovery, like generally being good to ourselves can be a really helpful long-term tool. Um, I have a second one, but maybe I'll stop talking for a moment in case there's any interjection. No, I just thought it was funny when you were talking about like you want to, to maintain your sort of physical freedom and you're like, and then once I once I don't have that anymore, like I don't want to be here. And then I was Oh, thinking, I'm going to Switzerland our, and take a conversation yeah. the other day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm all for ending it while I still have my dignity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is this is not a uh a call for help, but I'm not at all suicidal. I'm just saying I really value my independence. <laughs> Uh, no, no, keep keep going. I uh, I don't have anything to interject at the moment. Okay, cool, cool. So the second point that I was going to make um, on the question of how do we keep clients going long term is you've read Atomic Habits. Yeah. Okay. So for those of you that haven't, listeners, do definitely do. Um, James Clear. I don't know if he came up with this concept, but he definitely popularized it. It's um, being uh, process focused, not outcome focused. Now when clients come to us they're really focused on how much weight they lose every week <laughs> and they are good people or bad people according to them based on did the scale go up or down that day um they had a successful or a failed week based on did the scale go up or down that day now these are the outcomes we're trying to achieve but really we shouldn't be focused on the outcomes because we can't control them we can only influence them the things that are within our center of control the things we really should be focusing on and as coaches we have the influence to help direct our clients attention towards the thing that's the things that really matter and that are the process variables not the outcome variables so as a coach with our client check-ins we ask them all sorts of questions um qualitative how do you feel this week how was your digestion how do you think your sleep was what went well what do you think you could have done better but we also look at things like how many daily steps did you do? You know, does that match to your daily step target? Did you get all your training sessions in? What was your protein intake? Um, and as coaches, we congratulate our clients on such a successful week if all of the process variables were ticked. They ate their protein, they did their training, they had great sleep, like stress reduction, whatever the things are we're working on. It's not that we'll never mention the outcome. We might give a quick congratulations or, hey, hang in there, the scales will respond soon. But uh, drawing people's attention to the process or the systems and getting them to focus on that and then 
counting that as success or failure really helps people hang on when the scales are being stubborn or, I don't know, things aren't moving for a period of time instead of losing motivation just because of a shitty weight loss week. Yeah, there's there's definitely something to be said about um, like just momentum because there there's so there's so much that happens behind the scenes, especially because you're not just starting from here. <clears throat> like so, for instance, most most Americans I think gain what is it two kilos around two kilos every year or something like. That. So it's like you're you're talking about like. Or sorry, I think it's one kilo per year, one to two kilos. So in in 10 years, you're talking about like 10 to 20 kilos gained, right? No muscle. Like, yeah, yeah, muscle, exactly, um, of, of fat. And so it's like people are already headed in this direction. And so when they don't see the immediate weight loss, it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like you're, you're having to dig yourself out of a hole first before we can start to get in there. And that process of reaching critical mass can be very difficult because someone who is not dieting at all, not doing anything, but let's say even if they're remaining weight stable, they're doing nothing, right? But then you start dieting and you have to pay attention to the types of foods you're eating. You've got to pay attention to how many steps you're taking. You gotta pay attention to your hydration. So there's all these different things now that you're having to do. And you might still remain weight stable for several weeks, because even though you're building these habits, it hasn't reached critical mass yet for it to actually turn over into weight loss. Mm. And people can understand this from the standpoint of like marketing or business, where it's like, you just need to market, 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 market. And you might only get like one little thing here and there, but eventually if you keep going, it's gonna blow up and then you'll have a steady stream of like clients and revenue and all this stuff, but you have to stay consistent. And it's very difficult for someone who's gone from doing nothing to now they're fucking working all the time on this one thing and they're just not seeing the results yet or they're not seeing the results that they wanted yeah. and so that can be very difficult to uh to sort of accept and so i think that coaching relationship is so incredibly important because then you know once they give you your trust or sorry once you earn their trust you can actually have those conversations and be like well look at look at how much you're doing look at how much you feel better and even if the scale's not going down generally if they're doing all these things pretty well they will notice a difference in how they look how they feel maybe their clothes fit differently even if the scale is kind of like there's a bit of a latency period between mm -hmm. enacting these behaviors and actually seeing, you know, the, the more objective results, mm -hmm. it's, it's tricky, but it's, uh, yeah, it can, it can be pretty uh, deflating sometimes when you get that, if you're not aware of why that's happening. Oh yeah. And I think it's really a coach's responsibility to explain that, that um, Usually. there's a huge lag time between action and outcome. Um, and there's other reasons why scales go up and down outside of weight loss and gain. And maybe you did lose fat this week, but maybe there's some inflammation or, you know, maybe you didn't do as big of a poo this morning. And that's why the scales haven't moved. Like there's, there's so many reasons. Um, but on that note, I feel like it's also the coach's responsibility um, to establish an environment of psychological safety with a client where the client knows that they don't have to be perfect and that they will make mistakes. And when they do, those mistakes aren't necessarily holes, but they can be portholes to finding better ways. 
telling their coach, hey, this is what happened. And together the coach and the client can come up with a strategy. Well, next time this occurs, because usually things don't happen just once, what could you do better? And it's always better to ask the client than tell them because they know themselves better than you know them and they can come up with their own solutions. They're smart. We want to build their problem solving skills. You know, we want to build their confidence uh, in their own ability to come up with solutions instead of just always relying on you. Um, because, Dan, you probably know some coaches out there that are like, I'm looking to work with only highly motivated individuals. Um, they fire their clients at the first mistake and people end up don't, uh, not admitting the mistakes that they make um, and therefore don't always work through them. They just end up lying to their coach and things don't end well. And I always think coaches that only want to work with those people, you're not a coach. Like maybe you're giving advice that makes you a consultant. Um, either you don't want a coach or you just don't know how to. Yeah, well, it's funny because um, I'll see coaches all the time. I mean, again, not as much anymore just because I don't think that the people like the circles we kind of hang out in really have many of those people. But you definitely see it every now and then where – uh, a coach will be like, oh, look at my client. Like, you know, they're here because of me and da, da, da. And they take all the responsibility and all the credit for their successes. <laughs> but then if they fail, they're just like, oh, well, you're just not dedicated. It's like, well, <laughs> that's, that's convenient. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know. If ever I have a client who who's doing really well, like, yes, it's because of my program. And it's definitely influencing it. But I've given tons of people programming who didn't do a fucking thing and aren't getting any results. So it's like, you know, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. So anytime someone hits like a big PR, I'm always like, man, if if I post stuff, which is pretty, I don't really post client stuff uh, online, but you know, if they tag me and it, I'll sometimes post it up and I'll be like, hey, great job. Like this person works so hard um, and and is doing phenomenal. Like, but I was trying to give the credit to them because realistically, like it is them, you know, I'm giving them the information, giving them the resources to giving them all the stuff, but they are the ones who have to put in the work be disciplined, learn the skills, educate themselves, and actually make it happen. And so so it's like, you know, I'm part of it, but it's definitely not mostly me. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, like you said, you're presenting that environment of like feeling, and I know it sounds kind of lame or whatever when you say like, oh, safe space, but it actually really is pretty important. Like you genuinely do have to treat athletes kind of like kids in the sense of, you know, when they're doing something and you see them like, doing something well or heading the right direction. You're like, Hey man, you know what? Great job. I know that you said you were, you know, you don't want off your diet, but let, let's look back. Like last time you did this, it was way worse. And you gained like eight pounds over the weekend, but this time, you know, just cause like food, water, sodium, all yeah. that shit. but like this time you went off, but you remained weight neutral. That's a massive win. So yeah. you can see that you're heading in the right direction. So I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't do anything other than just get back to your regular diet congratulate yourself for acknowledging that and hey let's continue this progress down the road and it's like i'm talking to them kind of like they're a little bit more of a kid but that's real that, that's actually what you need and everyone i've talked to is like oh you know you need to be hard on me i'm like nah you're gonna go real hard for like three months and you're gonna burn out so i'm gonna <laughs> not do that and instead i'll just use like what i think is probably gonna be best and then after a while they're like yeah i really like your approach i'm like yeah knowing to knowing when to give someone a hug or when to kick them up the ass yeah yeah that's that's super important because simultaneously i've had other times where i've had an athlete who you know because i'm normally very soft-spoken to my clients and my athletes um uh, especially if i'm doing like video reviews and stuff like that I, I always try and say like highlight the good things that they're doing and I'll always try and frame what they need to work on in like a constructive manner um 
But uh, but then there definitely are times. They're pretty few and far between, to be honest. But there are times where like someone will say something, and I'll be like, "Hey, look, you're being a fucking pussy. I don't want you cutting sets like that. The weight moved really well, and you just bitched out. So next time that happens, just leave the gym, because you know what I mean. Like if, if that's what you're going to do, just leave the gym. Don't even do anything else. Right? Just quit." Right, and then they get the message real quick, and they're like, "Oh shit!" And I gotta get back. Like, if Daniel is like standing angry, then, yeah. then I better fucking get back on it. Because <laughs> I, I know a lot of people think I'm like this big mean guy, but I'm actually very, very soft spoken and very like nice, <laughs> especially when I'm coaching. <laughs> so <laughs> it's an important like, skill to have. Huh? It's an important skill to have, I think, because yeah. if you're always an asshole, it kind of loses its impact. It's like using the c word too often. Like it's so impactful because it's hardly said. That's a good, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, it's like when you see someone who's normally really calm and then they're kind of like, you know, they, they kind of like step up a little bit. You're like, oh, across the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so I wanted to, to know if there was any particular area that's related to fitness, either directly or indirectly, um, that you're particularly interested in. Uh, I know we've had a lot of conversations about books and courses and stuff like that. But I've always found that like the more that I learn about like PTSD or trauma or disordered eating or like drug or substance abuse or mental health, like that helps me so much in my coaching practice and in my educational practice and how I'm delivering information, how I'm writing articles or, you know, speaking at seminars or whatever. And I was wondering if there's anything, like I said, whether it's directly or indirectly related to fitness that, uh, that you're particularly interested in or, or passionate about at the moment. Right now, I'm really interested. I know this sounds very general, but soft skills. So when we think about the skills that are necessary for a coach, obviously, we need to be organized and all of that stuff. We need to have the hard skills of understanding the science. But the soft skills is the other side of that, which is how we can get our clients to actually implement this thing, how we can help them overcome emotional eating, um, help them change their mindset around nutrition around their bodies things like that um what i found very very helpful though which is sounds unrelated is being a bit more human uh which has not on purpose but it's allowed my clients to open up to me and i can see the deeper reasons why they're doing things let me expand i i don't know when was it maybe like a year ago I spoke about um, being diagnosed with PTSD and my extensive history with domestic violence. Um, and at the time, it really didn't have anything to do with nutrition. I was just talking about the stuff on my personal page. And clients have come to me and have told me about their history of child abuse or their rape or their, you know, really traumatic experiences. And then they, they this is why lizzie i'm overweight because i don't want men to look at me i'm scared and you know then okay so this is the reason let's let's go to a psychologist and work on that and then emotional that then they don't feel fearful when they feel sexy um and so i've really found that interesting and it was definitely a unintended consequence of being a little bit more open and human. Also, I spoke about my binge eating disorder that I developed in the process of a comprep that I did like a lifetime ago, many moons ago. Um, and being able to relate to trauma, relate to eating disorders, um, I definitely don't think makes me soft, but makes me understand that it's not always an excuse. There's 
usually pretty legitimate reasons that people are doing the things they're doing and everything they're doing is actually a solution to what their problem is, but it's also causing problems as well. So how can we go about actually resolving whatever problem they're trying to solve without causing more problems? Mm -hmm. So soft no, skills is a summary. <laughs> That, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I can, I can see how that would increase because I've honestly had a pretty similar experience. Um, you know, even just if I think when I'm doing like the like weekly check-ins or whatever that I do, uh, I'll kind of be on video and if they say something, I'll be like, you know what, honestly, this is really common. I've kind of experienced something really similar myself. It does sort of like bridge that gap of relatedness. And I mean, that comes back to kind of one thing you... You didn't call it self-determination theory. You 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 talked about like building confidence through experience or, or sorry successes and like self-efficacy. But relatedness is also a huge element of of building self-efficacy and self-determination theory. And so, um, yeah, I, that that totally makes sense. And I can see why someone would relate to that because then it's like, oh shit, this person's gone through all those problems. I have those problems. They're probably going to be a pretty good uh, individual who understands me because they have the outcomes. They seem to have the education, the results. And they've gone through similar experiences and similar, you know, trials and tribulations. And so I think that resonates with a lot of people, especially nowadays when everything's so fucking fake. You know, people pretend to be like these awesome people. And then you find out behind closed doors, there's like doing really shady shit. And like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, are you familiar with the term like armchair philosopher or armchair scientist, something like that? Oh, very much so. Okay, so for listeners that aren't familiar with the term, it essentially refers to somebody that just theorizes and, you know, tells you what to do and what should be done, but hasn't actually done the thing themselves. Is that your understanding of an armchair coaching? I, I made a post about this literally yesterday. Yeah. So. Is that that one about um, the bodybuilding coach that isn't jacked or a nutrition coach that's fat? That one? Yeah, I was just like, be skeptical of, of getting fitness advice from fat nutritionists, skinny hypertrophy coaches, weak strength coaches, and researchers with no athletic background. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, I think that there are lots of armchair scientists, lots of armchair coaches, armchair PTs who are trying to help their clients deal with problems that they themselves haven't been through. Because we know, like, we can read a book about how to squat, but until you've actually got under the bar, how are you going to cue that? How are you going to set up expectations? You know, like, I think somebody needs to go through it. And it's not like you can only be a good coach if, like, you have an extremely traumatic history. Of course, that's not true. But I think that uh, clients, have a lot of mm, what's another word for buy-in that make might make more sense to people uh people they're just more invested yeah okay more invest yeah more invested because they see that like oh you know i have this emotional eating issue and i know there's all these theories around how to get over it but my coach has been there and understands what it feels like and knows that it's not an excuse and um, they're, just, they're not an armchair coach. So I think the more experiences you can have as a coach, um, the better you'll be. Like, I have no dreams or aspirations of getting on a bodybuilding stage again. Like, that is well and truly behind me. Um, but I'm really comfortable sitting at my current leanish physique and maintaining my strength. Like, doing these things are really comfortable for me. They're just, they're ingrained, they're part of my lifestyle, but I know that my clients feel really uncomfortable. And so what was it, like two years ago, I was like, let's put yourself in an uncomfortable situation 
Um, and I ended up doing this pretty savage cut for a photo shoot. I'm not really into photo shoots, but I, I'm also really awkward in front of the camera. So like that was really uncomfortable. So I wanted to, cause I'm telling people to do these things. And I'm like, it's fucking easy. Just like eat more vegetables, go for walks everywhere. But like, it's not easy for them. So mm -hmm. I wanted to do things where I could put myself in their shoes. You know, not that they're necessarily getting dick skin lean for a photo shoot, but their shoes in the sense of like how they feel. And I think that's super important as a coach. Like, okay, you don't want to get on a bodybuilding stage. Fine. At least get that lean if you're trying to get your clients that lean. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to that expression. Like the map is not the terrain. You know? <laughs> like you can, you can read everything you want about it, but until, until you get in there, it's just, there's so much stuff that you'd have no possible idea. There, there's no way to know it outside of just experiencing it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I think, I think that there's just so much that can be garnered from that. And I mean, it, it yeah, I don't really think I need to expand on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Coaches just go and do the thing. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, it, you know, would anyone feel comfortable going to a surgeon who has read everything and knows yep. everything and can give you every single answer, but he's never performed a surgery. And now he's going to perform the surgery that he specializes in, but it's his first time and it's on your heart. It's like, no, fuck oh, no. no. <laughs> oh, okay. So you, you admit then that there's something intrinsically valuable about individual experience. Okay, good. Then you agree with everything I'm saying. So fuck yeah. off. We get these, um, I don't know if they're bots or what, but all the time on the Flex Success page, I mean, we're no celebrity, we've got like 10,000 likes, whatever. Uh, we get people being like, hey, do you want to uh, increase your exposure? And I go and check out their page. You've got like 300 followers. <laughs> Look, yeah. I don't think I'm going to go with you. But uh, yeah, I get, I get that. I get that every now and then as well. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so we're coming up on that hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. So I, I appreciate the conversation. It was, it was really, really great. Um, I think there's a lot of great takeaways for the listeners. And also it was just really great to catch up. So where, where can people find you? Uh, me personally in Mexico City right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is my Instagram handle? Flex Coach Lizzie, I believe. Thank you. Yes, you're right. That's fucking uh, brutal that you don't know your own Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I don't search for myself very often. I also don't know my phone number. Flex Coach underscore Lizzie with a Y. And you can find Flex Success, Flex underscore Success on Instagram soon to be expanding to other platforms, currently mainly just Instagram. Uh, and in the link in bio, you can see all the links to our resources, apply for coaching, our books, our courses, our podcast. It's all there. Awesome. So I'm going to put all that stuff. I'm going to put Lizzie's Instagram, uh, their their company, uh, Flex Success. And then I'm also going to put the link to their link tree uh, so you guys can check out all that stuff. Definitely go make sure you give them a follow. They put out lots of great content on a regular basis. And again, they have a podcast and lots of great stuff. So, um, yeah, Lizzie, thanks so much for jumping on. It was it was great to have you. It was an honor to be asked because uh, you have some pretty intimidating names on your podcast. So I'm glad to be amongst them. Yeah, no worries. See ya. Bye.